You are tuned into the Dr. Tina Show with Dr. Tina Moore. For more, visit drtina.com. On this episode of the Dr. Tina Show, I'm sitting down with Dr. Stephen Hussey, author of Understanding the Heart, Surprising Insights into the Evolutionary Origins of Heart Disease and Why It Matters. This interview completely blew my mind and changed everything. I want you to dive in, I want you to take notes, and I want you to be ready to have your mind blown because what you thought about heart disease may actually be something very different. Although the origins we still agree on, Dr. Hussey brought in some concepts that I had never heard before or had never considered in a completely new and novel way. I hope you enjoy. Let's jump in. Okay. Dr. Stephen Hussey, thank you so much for being on the Dr. Tina show. I am excited to to have you here today. I found you through social media, through the Instagram world, and was loving your posts, realized that you were an author of a great book called Understanding the Heart. You, and then I just found out recently that I maybe was your professor in chiropractic college. (laughs) So I'm super excited to have you here. This is a great topic, and my audience members really love it. They need it, and I'm excited to dive in. So can you introduce yourself to the audience, please? Yeah, so I'm, I'm Dr. Stephen Hussey. I'm a chiropractor, and I have a master's in functional medicine as well. Um, I, um, you know, I run a, I have a very, you know, um, musculoskeletal type chiropractic practice, but then online, I do a lot of health coaching, and I like to research and write books and things like that. And so, yeah, like my, my interest in the heart um, came from, you know, my, my own health journey and how I had a lot of inflammatory conditions when I was a kid. I had asthma and IBS and I had, I used to have chronic hives that just broke out all over my body. Um, and doctors really couldn't tell me why they just gave me steroids and stuff, but ultimately ended up with autoimmune type one diabetes from that inflammation. And, um, and so, yeah, now my body doesn't make insulin. Um, and you know, I've corrected most of those ailments, but that type one diabetes is kind of the collateral damage that came from that. And so that heavily predisposed me to heart disease. And so, you know, throughout my entire adult life, I've really been kind of looking into that disease and health in general. And I found a lot of things that are very contrary to what, um, you know, what I was taught and told uh, in school and in other places, what the conventional wisdom about heart disease is. And so I started sharing that a few years ago and then eventually put it down to a book, which is Understanding the Heart. And uh, yeah, so here I am and, and having a good time doing it. I love it. I am excited to talk to you about this topic and everything you just mentioned too, because I, my listeners know I have a bit of a similar story. I did not end up with type one diabetes, but I ended up with a host of other autoimmune conditions and that persist and I manage well, um, through, I mean, that's really what drove me into naturopathic college. And I'm sure you towards functional medicine was like, it's the personal journey of trying to find answers to help yourself and help your family members and, and obviously help your patients. But, um, can I ask you about the, t- talk about that type one diabetes, how that pertains to the masses as a whole, f- as far as f- uh, metabolic health goes, and then why does that predispose people to higher rates of heart disease? Yeah. So, so with type one, well, so, you know, people hear about diabetes all the time. Um, and, you know, the, when we talk about diabetes, there's, there's two main, I guess, categories over type one and type two, but there's actually other forms of it as well. Like there's this lot of form that we have. Um, and then there's this, oh, I'm forgetting the the term of it. Uh, I want to say like, at least there's like 12 different forms of this other type two. And some people can cure that just through diet and lifestyle. Um, not type two, it's a different form. It's like a type one that can cure through diet and lifestyle. So there's those other subcategories too, but the two main ones are type one and type two. Um, type one is the um, it's kind of this, they used to call it juvenile cause it used to happen only in kids. Um, and now it's, it's happening in adults too. Um, but type one is where, you know, the, the main theory is that the body attacks itself in an autoimmune type fashion. Um, so it's attacks the cells that make insulin, uh, in the pancreas. And so the body no longer makes insulin. And so you're diabetic because you no longer make insulin. Whereas in type two, you are resistant. You're still making insulin but your body's become so pathologic, so to speak, that you're not responding to that insulin, you're insulin resistant. So it's kind of like you don't have insulin, just like a type one, because you're resistant to it, not because you're not making it, whereas a type one is not making it at all. However, you know, the different kind of mechanisms um, to where we get this blood sugar irregulation, um, but um, but that predisposes each of those people to heavily to the same types of diseases. Um, and uh, And they're more prone to um, uh, things like heart disease, things like, you know, worse outcomes with infection, um, things like, um, you know, damage to small, anything that would damage small blood vessels. So eye problems, kidney problems, that kind of stuff. Um, the, the thing is, so a type one, you know, usually 
you know, can, can live for a long time if they manage their blood sugars without some of these things, um, because there's the, there's no pathologic state really that's dysregulating or creating insulin resistance firsthand. Um, whereas in type two, they're so pathologic that they've gotten to the point where they're insulin resistant. They're already, um, the body's already in a bad state. And so they tend to get those, um, these things are predisposed to more readily or more quickly than a type one would. Um, but for his type one, why does that predispose someone to heart disease? Um, well, it's because if we look at the, um, the, the damage that's caused, um, from, um, oscillating blood sugars, you know, so it's not necessarily high blood sugars, even though that's not a good thing to have a high blood sugar. Um, if it's high and stable, that's way less problematic than say a blood sugar that's going up and down all day long. Um, so when you talk about that diet of processed carbohydrates, that's shooting blood sugar up and making it come back down, shooting up and coming back down, um, you know, that's, that's a problematic thing because that's what causes damage to the lining of blood vessels. Um, and so when the lining of blood vessels become damaged, the body's forced to, you know, repair it somehow. Um, and in a state of insulin resistance, which is what type two is, um, insulin is what signals the lining of those arteries to repair themselves. Um, growth and repair is what is insulin's, you know, main role. Um, and so if you're insulin resistant and you're getting damaged to the lining of the arteries, they can't repair themselves. The body's forced to do something else or else that artery is going to rupture. Um, and so it, it takes cholesterol and minerals and things like that and kind of uses the like spackle and kind of, you know, patches up the lining of the artery. And that's atherosclerosis. That's hardening of the arteries that we, that we see that is characteristic of cardiovascular disease or one form of cardiovascular disease. And, you know, and then people talk about how that, you know, leads to stenosis and coronary arteries. And, and I would, I would argue against some things about why heart attacks happen and, and the, the exact mechanisms of why they happen. But, um, but yeah, that's kind of the mainstream narrative. That's why higher blood sugars predispose us to um, damage the lining of the arteries. The other thing is, is that um, if people are familiar with a hemoglobin A1C test, like, so if you're, what that test is measuring is the percentage of red blood cells in like a, you know, in a, in a slide, um, a microscope slide that is glycosylated or damaged by glucose. And so if you're, if you have higher blood sugars, a higher number of those red blood cells is going to become damaged by glucose. So you get a higher hemoglobin A1C. Um, and so this just goes that just goes to show that higher amounts of glucose causes damage to things. It glycosylates things. It's that, uh, that malleard reaction uh, that we kind of talk about. Um, but, um, but that's that in type two and type one diabetes, that's more likely to happen. You're more likely to get damage by, um, saturation of glucose to certain tissues, including red blood cells. So that's another reason why it's, we're predisposed to these diseases. Yeah. And for, in simplistic terms, I always try to explain it to patients that if you've got a lot of sugar floating around in your bloodstream and it can't get into the cells, your cells think they're starving. And in that process, they drive you to eat more food, which is usually in the form of quick carbohydrates, depending on the cravings and your microbiome and how, uh, how bad your dietary habits are, you know, and then that excess glucose floating out there, it caramelizes you. I mean, it, it rusts, it caramelizes. I think of it as uh, when you take the blowtorch and you caramelize the top of the creme brulee, you know, I mean, that's mm -hmm. and that crisping and browning. That's, that's what's happening to the insides of your arteries. That's what's happening to your cell membranes that are supposed to be fluid. And, you know, they're a fatty membrane, they're supposed to be nice and fluid. And then most people are eating tons of seed oils, oxidated rancid seed oils. So their cellular membranes are turning into that. That's what their cellular membranes are being made up of now is these fatty, gross omega-6s at high doses. And that's those are already rancid going in. I mean, it's the modern American, especially the standard American diet, we should say, that's been out. Uh, it's been exported across the world is <laughs> mm -hmm. really the perfect storm for destroying people's vascular system. I think people think of heart disease and they think something is wrong with my heart. But what you're explaining here in really good terms is we're talking about the vascular system as well as even being more critical. Can you talk a bit about those end, those distal capillaries, those small blood vessels and what you were mentioning earlier with some of the organ systems? I don't think people understand that well. They don't understand what destroying your distal capillaries and destroying, whether it's in your musculoskeletal system or in your organ system, what is that doing to people? Yeah. So, I mean, that's the, that's the, the point in the body where, 
um, nutrient exchange is happening from from your blood to your tissues, right? And so your tissues need these nutrients. Um, and so if we have these damaged uh, delivery mechanisms, these damaged capillaries, capillaries are the smallest form of an artery. Um, and if, we, if they're damaged and they can't get exchange of nutrients uh, very well, or um, I would say, or the, the blood or the fluid that is the blood is not moving properly through those and we're getting stagnant um, hypoxic, which is low oxygen blood. Um, now we're depriving oxygen to tissues, uh, which is a very big deal. Um, then we're going to get damage, right? And so um, that's why in diabetes, you know, we start to see damage to areas where there's lots of capillaries, where there's, you know, the, the exchange of these nutrients. So like in the eye, there's lots of little tiny capillaries there or in the kidneys um, or in distal, uh, in the, in the hands and the feet, you know, we start to get that neuropathy type stuff, um, because the tissue or the nutrient exchange in those tissues is not happening because there's damage to these small arteries. And it's very, um, if you think about it, like the size of a capillary is, is some of them are like, you know, the size of one red blood cell. So there's like one single file red blood cell kind of moving through, uh, these capillaries. And if, uh, and so it, it that's how, I guess it, it's an example of just how slow the nutrient exchange is going to be like, as far as like the oxygen being delivered. And so if it's already that slow, because it's that small, um, and then we're damaging it even more, um, we're basically shutting off the body's, you know, um, access to nutrients and, and oxygen. And that causes a lot of issues, um, especially the longer it goes on. Right. So the tissues there at the end are getting damaged because they are being deprived of oxygen. So they're dying back and the nutrients aren't circulating through the body it's a mess. People don't understand this. This is like the big idea, I think, in all of this. I mean, we can talk about, oh, you know, my uncle had a stent put in his coronary artery and all of that's concerning. I get that. But it's the slow, low grade damage that people don't realize. And it's not just type one and type two diabetes, as you well know, but I don't know if the audience knows this. I'm sure the listeners of my show do. Um, it's that low-grade metabolic dysfunction that happens for a decade or more before the magic diabetes diagnosis, right? Diabetes mm -hmm. is just a number on a page for a type two is just a number on a page like, oh, you hit the magic 120 fasting glucose. Welcome mm -hmm. to the club. And I'm like, dude, you've been hanging out here for 10, 20 years. And the damage that we are speaking of is happening during that entire process during that those few decades. And it's it's tough. You know, I, I remember learning in school that if you see, and maybe this was where we went together in chiropractic college, or maybe it was naturopathic college, I don't remember. But it was basically like, if you're seeing kidney damage from type two diabetes, you can bet that that's happening in the retina as well. So these people are going blind, they're going to lose their toes, they're going to lose kidney function. And if anyone doesn't believe us, look at how many dialysis centers are popping up all over in mini malls. That is a horrifying sign of the times that you and I intimately understand, but I don't think most people understand why would we need like convenience store access to dialysis centers if our population wasn't severely in trouble? Yeah, it was the same. Like you mentioned all those things and in my head, I was thinking erectile dysfunction. If you've got erectile dysfunction, you've got vascular disease, uh, you have insulin resistance, you know, and people don't think about it. They think, oh, I have something wrong with my hormones or something like that. And that, that could be the case, um, or it could be psychological, but lots of times it's vascular disease. Um, and, and you have, you have heart disease or cardiovascular disease. Guys don't want to hear that, no. I, especially from a female doctor. I would always <laughs> ask them, you know, actually one of the clues of low testosterone that I noticed clinically was because I did both, you know, I did a lot of musculoskeletal, as you do a lot of musculoskeletal medicine, but I ran labs on everybody. And so I was doing a lot of that for a long time. And when I would have someone pull their pants up so I could take a look at their knee to assess some, and I did mostly regenerative injection therapies in the end, you know, the last several years, but I would go to assess their knee and their shins would be void of hair and mm. they would have no hair on their shins. These are men and they'd have mm. no hair on their shins. And that I started noticing that correlating with low testosterone levels on labs. Mm. And so I would immediately ask them like, Hey, how's, how, how do you think your testosterone levels were or are? And that was my nice way of <laughs> asking about erectile dysfunction and they got it and they'd always say, oh, everything's fine down there. And I'd be like, okay, but here are some other common signs and, you know, uh, low stamina, low ability to heal after injury, uh, not getting gains in the gym, not recovering well in the gym, fatigue, brain fog. Cause if you've got low T, you've got one foot in the grave because you are, it's the wicked, 
vicious cycle, right? Like you're more prone to metabolic disease if you are low T and if you're low, if you have metabolic disease, you're definitely driving low testosterone. Like that's the, that's the cycle. So a lot of dudes don't get this. They just think, oh, I'm getting a belly in mm. middle age, right? Like, what do you tell those guys? Because this is the group that women know. Women are like, I am getting fat and I don't feel good. Something's wrong. But with men, men are like, oh, no, no, I'm fine. At old boys club, got the belly. Everything's fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and. Well, first thing I ask them is like, what med medications are you on? You know, because if we're talking about heart disease and the number one drug that's used, uh, I guess attempting to combat heart disease is statin drugs. Um, and uh, if you want to talk about depleting hormones, um, you know, what are your hormones made of? They're made of cholesterol. Uh, and if you prevent the body from making cholesterol in the liver, which is what statins do, they inhibit the, the process of the making of cholesterol from a fatty acid, um, then you're not going to have enough cholesterol around to be making hormones. Um, and so, you know, that's gonna, that's a huge, um, barrier to a lot of different things to, to, you know, growth and vitality, but also, um, being, being a man or a woman, um, like that's what hormones are, what make us make women beautiful and make men strong. You know, like it's, it's, uh, it's without those things. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a travesty that that's the main, that, that cholesterol is so vilified and that's the main approach to combating heart disease, which cholesterol really has very little to do with, you know, the path the pathology of heart disease, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's just a, a shame that there's this attack on hormones too, as oh, yeah. well as many other side effects of statins, but. And people wonder how we ended up in this pickle with this pandemic when we've got mm -hmm. everybody on statins. I mean, I saw 20 something year olds on statins. It was wild in mm -hmm. clinical practice. And I would explain this to them. And then their wives would be like, you know, you are having some erectile dysfunction. And I'm like, yeah, that's because his testosterone is being poisoned into oblivion. Mm -hmm. It's a wild, when you understand how the physiology of the body works, and I think you've put it so simply for the audience to understand, like, I think it, people start to get it. This episode of the Dr. Tina show is brought to you by my personal line of products that you can find inside my store at store.drtina.com. My personal favorite way to optimize my metabolism, aside from the obvious lifestyle interventions that I constantly double down on, like strength training, sleep, stress reduction, and a mostly meat-based diet, is with the following two bestsellers in my line. The Metabolism Combo, as I call it, of Carb Blunt and Metaboflex. Carb Blunt features a favorite herb of mine, berberine, which has been used clinically for a long time for supporting healthy blood glucose levels, as well as a branded ingredient called NC2. NC2 is wildcrafted from brown seaweed and has been shown in a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial to statistically and significantly improve markers for glycemic health compared to placebo, who were exposed to the same diet and physical activity program. Metaboflex is a science-based strategy for positively impacting leptin levels. Leptin is a fat-derived hormone that is elevated in some individuals struggling with weight along with joint issues. Healthy leptin activity helps balance energy intake and expenditure by influencing appetite, food cravings, and metabolism. Leptin also impacts joint comfort and function. The main ingredient in Metaboflex has been shown in a double-blind, randomized, controlled study in overweight adults with joint discomfort to significantly reduce joint synovial and serum levels of cytokines, as well as significant improvements in joint comfort along with improved blood lipid profiles and weight loss. While I can't make specific health claims, tell you how to dose them, or make individual health recommendations, I can tell you how they work. As always, check with your provider before beginning any supplement regimen. I did have to give both products a chance to take effect. Listeners of The Dr. Tina Show can enjoy 10% off this favorite combo by using the code METABOLISM10 over inside my store at www.store.drtina.com. Again, head to store.drtina.com, that's D-R-T-Y-N-A, and use the code METABOLISM10 for 10% off when you buy these both together as a combo. Okay, so on that note, I want to talk about that a little bit more because it's really important. We see a lot of these shifts in cardiovascular disease start to ramp up in middle age. That is, in my opinion, at kind of that perfect storm of the hormones are starting to decline naturally, which and you can talk on this more too, um, the way I've always understood it is we're supposed to have our cholesterol raise as we age, right? Like mm -hmm. that's the body's way of naturally compensating for the hormonal decline that occurs with age. And we're supposed to have our blood pressure increase as we age because our 
our pipes are getting floppier. They're not as, they don't have as good of turgor. So when did that shift happen and why, what are the repercussions? Like somewhere in my lifetime, I saw this happen for the most part, like where it really took hold. I know it started before I was born. I was born in the in early seventies, but like, it's been wild to watch what's like the, the, what the allopathic solution is. Let's talk about that some. Yeah. Well, I mean, so I, when I think about heart disease, I think I, I categorize it into like these three main categories of earth, three main imbalances that happen um, that, that create, I think, all aspects of heart disease, whether it's heart failure, um, a heart attack, or atherosclerosis. Um, and I think that's poor metabolic health, which we've kind of discussed a little bit. That's inflammation and oxidative stress. Um, and that's imbalance in the autonomic nervous system, which is the system in our body that's, you know, surveying our environment and telling us if we're in a safe or threatening environment. Um, and so when we look at those three things, and then we look at Western medicine's approach to heart disease, they see, you know, this buildup of atherosclerosis, or they see um, a heart attack that that they say is caused by the stenosis in a coronary artery and a blockage, um, which is sometimes the case, but not always the case. Um, and then they say, oh yeah, and stress is, plays a component too. And then they just give you a statin, you know, or they give you a blood pressure medication, um, which is, you know, to forcefully lower your blood pressure, which is basically a diuretic to to um, drain your fluid so that the push pressure comes down. Um, uh, so, but none of those things are addressing the cause, which is the poor metabolic health, insulin resistance, the inflammation, and oxidative stress that could be coming from psychological stress, diet, toxin exposure, all different types of things. Um, and the, the imbalance in the autonomic nervous system, which I think is the one that's most overlooked is, is, you know, how stressed are we past traumas, those kinds of things, um, are they unresolved and that kind of stuff. Um, and so there's just a complete lack of, of understanding of what causes heart disease. And if you can't understand what causes heart disease, then you're, you're going to get the approach to combating it wrong. And that's exactly what's happened in Western medicine. They, they, all they have are these drugs and, and yes, they're all, you know, funded by pharmaceutical companies. So they're going to recommend the drugs that they're all being told that this is the only way. Um, but what that leads to is a lack of understanding, which is my, why my book is called Understanding the Heart, because I'm trying to understand, or for the most of my adult life, I've been trying to understand um, what does cause heart disease. Um, and, uh, and, and like for, as an example, like, and talk about in my book, how the, the heart is not the main mover of the blood, like we're told it is. We've totally misunderstood the true function of the heart. And if you misunderstand the function of the heart, how are you ever supposed to treat a dysfunctioning heart, like in heart failure? How are you ever supposed to you know, accurately and effectively um, combat that condition if you don't really understand what the heart is and why it's there? Let's talk about that. So talk about the real function of the heart. Talk about how this all works together. Yeah. So when uh, when you look at the heart and the size of it and and how um, efficient it is, you know, how, how much energy it used um, versus how much force it actually creates. It's pretty much impossible for a heart our size to be pumping blood throughout the entire body. Um, just there's no way it could happen. And uh, from an engineering perspective. And, um, and so there are like, you know, contraction of muscles and, you know, the one way valves in the veins that, you know, help encourage the flow of things. Um, but for the most part, the blood is moving more or less on its own. The heart do, does do some pumping, but it's no more than enough pumping to get kind of move the blood through the chambers of the heart itself. But the blood is actually um, moving on its own. And they've actually proven this um, in animals. Like, well, well, they've seen back in the 40s and the 1940s and 1960s, they did the um, experiments where they, you know, they'd stop the the heart of, uh, of the animal and, um, and, uh, the blood would continue to flow up to two hours after the heart stopped beating. Um, and so then more recently they've, they've done this in university of Washington, um, with, uh, Dr. Gerald Pollock and his lab and his, um, under his graduate students. Um, they've shown that when you stop the, in chick embryos, at least you stop the heart from beating and the, and the blood continues to flow as long as you put radiant energy into the system. So we're talking about infrared light. We're talking about, um, contact with the earth, other living things, that kind of stuff. And so it turns out that water has the ability to hold energy and it's a very unique liquid and that it can do this. And when it does hold sufficient radiant energy from the environment, then when it gets next to a hydrophilic surface, which our arteries happen to be, um, it actually structures itself into what's has been termed fourth phase water or exclusion zone water or structured water, whatever you want to call it. And, um, and that forms this barrier on the lining of the arteries that actually protects the arteries, but also the way that it forms creates an energy gradient that propels blood flow. 
um, well, profiles flow of water. And since the blood is more or less half water, um, then that we get, we get flow. And so when you look at it like that, and that the, the heart is not this pressure, pressure propulsion pump that's forcefully sucking in um, fluid from somewhere and forcefully pushing it out somewhere else. It's, it's actually this, this, um, um, this contraption that's put in the middle of flow that's already happening. Um, so that's more like a hydraulic ram, which I had no idea what that was when I first heard the term. I had to go look it up and watch YouTube videos that taught me what a hydraulic ram was. But a hydraulic ram is this kind of quote unquote pump that works when um, when water or liquid is flowing into it already. Um, and it only works by that mechanism. And so, um, you know, we have to maintain the flow by exposing our bodies to these things that energize water so that it moves through um, or else we're going to get um, a heart that's working harder than it's supposed to as far as pumping, which is, you know, exactly um, what happens in heart failure is we get this heart that starts to expand because it's having to work harder than it's supposed to. And it's because the breakdown of these mechanisms of in the, in the periphery, in the arteries um, and the veins actually um, that aren't moving um, water now. And, and just if, if people are like seriously doubting my, me right now, just think about the lymphatic system doesn't have a pump, but the fluid, the fluid moves through that, um, a, a tree doesn't have a pump, but it gets water from the roots of the trees all the way up to the leaves, doesn't it? And that's because these mechanisms are out of play. This happens in nature, not just in, in animals. Um, and so it's, it's just fascinating to think of it that way. And the thing that solidifies all of it for me is that when you look at the research and people with heart failure and use of infrared sauna, it is just phenomenal. These patients see complete turnarounds in their health and in the function of their heart when we put them in this environment of, in, or of uh, radiant energy into their body. Um, it's just absolutely um, fascinating. I don't understand why infrared saunas are not all over the place within cardiology, you know, but I guess we could speculate as to why, but, um, but yeah, so completely fascinating that we've totally misunderstood um, the purpose of the heart. So then people always ask me from that, well, why is the heart there? What is it doing? Like, why, why do we even need it then if the, if the things are, if the blood's moving on its own? And that's a good question. And there's, I think it's there for two reasons. One, is because another way that Dr. Pollock has found the, that the water gets energized is when it's vortex or spiraled in the presence of oxygen. Okay. So there's always oxygen present in the blood, even in the venous blood, there's, there's oxygen present. And if you look at what happens and you look how the heart muscle is oriented, it's oriented in this spiral like nature. The, the heart is actually one big band of muscle that's all wound up on itself. So when it contracts, it does so by twisting like this. And so it is vortexing the blood as it moves through it. Not only that, but when it goes through valves, the blood vortexes and kind of eddies when it goes through valves. And so we are, we are vortexing or spiraling this water in the presence of oxygen, therefore energizing it so that when it gets out into the periphery, it can form this fourth phase water that, that um, creates blood flow. Um, so in a way, the heart, I guess, is a little bit responsible for um, the flow of blood, just not in the way that we, we thought it was. And then the second reason the heart is there is because it, there's a lot of research that shows that um, in an athlete, you know, like in endurance athletes, especially they get like a, they get that um, enlarged heart. It's bigger and stronger, you know? Um, and that's actually, they've shown that it's because it's stopping the flow of blood more effectively, not pumping it harder. It's, it's oh. beefier. It's beefier because it's stopping the flow of blood. Because if I were to go for a run right now and, and um, all the blood was rushed over to the arterial side, because it's trying to deliver nutrients to the, to the muscles and everything like that. Um, and the heart wasn't there to slow down the flow, then all the blood would go over to the arterial side and the venous side would collapse, which would result in, in death. Uh, we, we, so the heart is there. The second reason is there is to maintain pressure between the two systems. Um, and so, and that's exactly what we see when we look at endurance athletes. Um, we see that when they are, you know, performing at a peak level that the heart is actually stopping the flow of blood um, so that it can maintain pressure between the two systems. That makes complete sense. I mean, that, it's that hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, but that makes sense. It's got to slow it down and get it, get it, uh, not just, yeah, the, the, it's, it's a, I don't know what the term is in hydraulics, but it's that like, mm -hmm. it's the interchange. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I know what you're talking about. I love this. Oh my, so my husband's a millwright. He, which the audience probably doesn't know what that is. I didn't know what it was either, but he, <laughs> He works, he used to, he's an electrician too, but he works in mills where they build huge equipment, right? And so he understands all of this stuff. And I have read some of your posts to him and he helps explain them in terms of machines, which helps me under, mm -hmm. you know, get it better so that he's been a great resource on that. Cause I think you mentioned the hydraulic ram in one of your posts and I was like, what is this? And yeah. he put it into normal people terms, which 
machinery terms, I guess I would say. And it's all fast, so fast. God, you just blew my mind. I've been (laughs) so not understanding structured water. I have asked and asked and asked, and I've gotten different explanations, but I just, I know my brain and I know when I I get this tingling feeling when I start to understand something, like I get all tingly and excited. And as you were talking, I was like, (laughs) yeah, and it's (laughs) actually not like technically, I guess it's not water because it's a different chemical makeup or or different molecular makeup, I should say, um, because you're cleaving off one of the um, one of the hydrogens and you're left with just an oxygen and hydrogen, those combine with other oxygens and hydrogens to make the structured water. So the, the molecular makeup is a little bit different than water, but it's still kind of, it's, it's like in this gel state, this, this fourth phase, it's not solid liquid or gas. It's in this gel state. So think of like jello and it's what the majority of the water in your body is made up of. So like most of our cells are filled with water, but I don't slosh around like a waterbed. I have some structure to me. Um, and that's because most of the water in my cells should be at least in this fourth phase state, um, which, which gives me that, you know, if I take the muscles of my forearm like that, it gives me that, that kind of bounce back like jello. You know? It gives you like a turger to your tissues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This makes sense too, from a chiropractic standpoint, because you know this, I mean, we put our hands on people all day. Not everybody feels the same, right? Mm-hmm. And you remember mm-hmm. day one in chiropractic college that, I mean, I remember palpating the lateral malleolus and I'm like, it's not there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I couldn't, yeah. And now like I can feel, I mean, these are my MRIs, right? Like I can yep. feel nuances and tissue so subtly. I, I mean, I can feel energy coming off of them. I can feel tension. Just it's, I could be a foot off somebody and I know where the... I know what's going on. I used to have this thing that I didn't understand before I became a doctor. I used to hug people. And when I hugged them, I knew exactly what was wrong with them. So as a little kid, I would tell somebody like, oh, you should go get your heart checked or something's wrong with your liver. And my mom did not know what to do with me. And of course, everybody treated me like I was nuts. But I learned later that that was my magical superpower in clinic, you know, and I can do it now almost Mm. by looking at someone. And I I think that's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing that lack of fourth phase water. When mm. they get so sick that they don't make it anymore, they, they're not, their water isn't structuring in their body. And I, I was talking to you off camera. I watched my type one diabetic aunt literally turn into Jabba the Hutt and she started to melt. And mm. we see this with autoimmune people, right? You can see it walking. I walk through Costco and all I see is melting people. And this isn't a diss on people with excess weight. This isn't a fat shaming thing. Like I can literally start to see their tissues look like it's melting. And sure, we could approach it from a really logical standpoint and say, Oh, that's the increased inflammation is causing collagen breakdown, which it is. All autoimmune diseases at their core are a collagen issue. Uh, Truly. I mean, any autoimmune disease you think of is at its core a collagen issue. And I think, you know, severe outcomes with any kind of infection and that cytokine storm is really a collagen issue at its core. And I think they're not making that structured water appropriately. Well, it's interesting you say that because in my book, I talk about why uh, cancer of the heart is so rare. And one of the things, one of the reasons is, well, there'll be a long explanation, but one of the things that, you know, Otto Warburg and the metabolic theory of cancer, um, one of the things he's, he's said over and over again throughout his work was that cancer cells lose their structure. You know, they, they start to, they become amorphous instead of these kind of structural round or whatever, um, you know, evenly spaced things, they lose their structure. Um, And that's because the fourth phase water within the cells is not able to form as well um, in a, in a cancer cell. Um, And so that's not just a cancer cell. That's uh, it could be all kinds of pathologic type cells. Um, or cells in pathological states, I should say. Um, but, um, but definitely he noticed that over and over again. He commented about it all the time that uh, that's what happens. Cells lose their structure. Wow. Wow. This just explains so many things to me. I'm, I'm kind of tripping out. <laughs> you should, then, then you should read, there's a book by Dr. Pollock called Cells, Gels, and the Engines of Life. And you <laughs> would love just it. love it. Um, I, I, it blew my mind and uh, it explains so many things for me that I observed that I had observed, you know, um, but yeah, um, everybody should go check it out, but, uh, it's a really good book. I think for those of us who have spent, you know, an extensive amount of time putting our hands on our patients, we have a Mm -hmm. very different idea of 
what's going on than doctors who don't touch their patients. And most doctors don't touch their patients. And it's getting even scarier now because most of the medical programs have gone virtual for the first several years or first several quarters. And so like students aren't even learning. They, you know, the naturopathic doctors already came out with horrendous hand skills. And then I was trying to teach them prolotherapy over the years. Mm-hmm. And it just became so frustrating that by the time I realized the next batch of students out the door were going to have no hand skills because of COVID, I was like, I, I quit doing prolo trainings. I was like, I can't do this. I need chiropractors yeah. that have licensed to inject. <laughs> if I'm yeah. going to keep my sanity, I love my NDs, but it is a difficult task to teach somebody to stick a needle in a joint when they don't even know how to palpate the joint, yeah. right? So it's not their fault. It's the schooling. And most mm-hmm. most schooling programs, aside from chiropractic and massage school, don't teach you to touch your patients. But when you touch your patients and you have the brain power and education that you have through functional medicine and I have through my naturopathic degree, the whole world opens because you start to link you know, pathologic conditions through the tissues, you start to feel it, you know, I mean, there's a couple examples, which this leads to heart disease. So hang on for my story here. But um, I remember being in school, and I was in both programs concurrently, and we were learning bone pathology at Western States Chiropractic College, and we were learning lab diagnosis and pathophysiology in and differential diagnosis in uh, and, and on both sides, but in specifically in naturopathic school. So I was learning how to diagnose things via labs and blood from the inside and the internal workings of these pathologies, but I was seeing them in real time mm. in bone path. And so I don't consider myself a chiropractor who became an ND or an ND who became a chiropractor. Like I did them both at the same time. So my brain just sort of morphed into something that I don't think there's a lot of on the planet. It's a, I have a unique way of approaching things. But when I got into clinical practice, I put my hands on every patient and I ran labs on every patient, as I said, and I started to see things link up. I started to see tension patterns, like in the thoracolumbar junction, that bra line, that, that classic tension pattern, very often low thyroid function. I started mm-hmm. to see that, you know, in, in chiropractic college, when we had a patient with really stiff, tight calves, what do we do? We grasp them to death. We, you know, mm-hmm. for the listeners, that's where you scrape them with a tool. It's horrifically painful. That that turgor in those calves is myxedema. It's proteinaceous swelling due to low thyroid function. It's a thyroid condition. It's not a muscle that needs working. It's a thyroid that needs some hormone, right? And this all makes sense with this fourth phase water thing, like in my head. And I can't explain it right now because I'm kind of tripping out on it. But I can see how this all goes together because when you're low thyroid, though, your risk of, I mean, just even being subclinically hypothyroid as a woman increased your risk of a heart attack like two and a half times. So, so much of, I I blame this pandemic on low thyroid function. I'll tell you why. It's because it makes you unable to think clearly. But it also really, (laughs) it's true. You cannot make, when you're low thyroid, you've got like four of your eight cylinder engines firing and you can't make good decisions. I've been there. I've lived with it. I've treated lots of patients. When we get their thyroid turned on, all of a sudden their cognition turns back on. And then we've got everybody on statin drugs, as we mentioned, and those people get a lot of dementia and inability Mm -hmm. to have sharp cognition. I, I knew of some pretty high level Uh, folks who came in to see me, elderly gentlemen who were about to retire from their awesome jobs because they couldn't think straight anymore. And it was the statin drug, right? And so this, this all ties back to cardiovascular disease because low thyroid function definitely definitely makes your lipids go crazy on labs. That's probably, in my opinion, the number one reason why we see high cholesterol in elevated and off-kilter lipids, more often than not, it's has nothing to do. Well, I shouldn't say that. I, I don't want to. I don't want to say it has nothing to do with our diet. It's not because of saturated fat intake. If it's from a healthy source, it's from this insulin resistance and this metabolic dysfunction we speak of. But also, it's due to low thyroid. But that low thyroid is due to what I just mentioned—the metabolic dysfunction. It's a whole big. Yeah. They're like eating their thyroid to death. They're like eating themselves into thyroid dysfunction, right? Yeah. Well, and you know, when you, when you get thyroid dysfunction, like you're—I mean, that's the metabolic hormone. Like, so how do you? What's the best way to ruin yes. your metabolism? <laughs> you know, yes. is you mess with your thyroid hormone, you mess with thyroid function. So. Yeah. And then you end up with a heart attack in 10 to 20 or 30 years. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I see these women, they come onto my Instagram and they're asking me for help. And all I have to do is link to their profile and look at them. 
And I'm like, I, I know exactly what's wrong. I'm, I mean, not in nuanced detail. And I, I know you see this too on social media. Like the big thing right now is like mold and parasites and toxicity. And I'm not against treating that, but like, let's just talk about, you know, and hormone balancing, but let's talk about the root cause of all of these. Like parasites don't glom on to a system as readily that is nutrient dense and metabolically sound. Mold doesn't latch on to a body that's warm and moving and, and it has this structure to its water and, and, and pipes are working because mold grows in stagnant, like lukewarm areas, not hot, metabolically yeah. revved areas. And then all of this leads people down the trail. And in their 50s and 60s, they dropped out of a heart attack. And people say, I didn't know they had any heart conditions. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's just, it's interesting. What I'm thinking when you're saying that is that, you know, there's, there's, like when you talk about mold and parasites and toxins and all that stuff and all that stuff is important. Like, and I'm going to try and, you know, decrease my exposure to all those things uh, as much as I can. However, there's no way you can avoid all that stuff in this day and age, you know? So it's like important to do that, but it's probably even more important to, to strengthen yourself. Like let's treat yourself, you know, rather than, you know, being uh, obsessed and stressed out about, Oh my gosh, is there mold in this room? Is there toxins here? You know, which is are important things to be aware of it's more important to make sure that your body's resilient enough so that yes. when you are inevitably exposed to those things, cause it's going to happen in this, in this modern world, um, that it can handle it, um, at least for that time that you were exposed and you can get through it. I mean, it's the same thing with COVID, uh, with yes. any infection, you know, whatever it may be, whatever causes infection or the symptoms we know of as infection, um, is your body resilient enough to handle that? Because what we saw with COVID was there was a bunch of people that weren't. Um, yes. and instead of focusing on how to strengthen those people, it was this avoidance behavior, um, this panic avoidance behavior, um, which is the same thing I see in a lot of people who, um, come to me saying, well, I can't do this because I'm old and I can't do this because of this toxin. I can't do this because of this. And it's just like, okay, they're just in this avoidance fear type behavior, which shuts down a lot of things. Um, and so let's empower that person to say, okay, let's make your body resilient so that you can get through those things without having to have me in this fear, you know, types uh, state. Yes, you are. You are singing my song. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is why I came out at the very beginning of the pandemic. And I said, Okay, guys, let's make us let's make ourselves harder to kill. And people got so mad at me and mm. were so just insulted that I would suggest such a thing. And I was like, no, literally, like <laughs> literally yeah. you have the power within a few weeks to shift what's happening inside your body and you become more resilient and you become harder to kill. It's like this monkeypox thing everyone's worried about. They're like, are you worried about monkeypox, Dr. Tina? And I'm like, no, yeah. I'm not. I, 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 I had chicken pox three times as a kid. That's how sickly I was growing up. I was a very sickly kid. So where I am today is a very well, much better built machine. I shouldn't say well built. It's mm -hmm. we're doing the best we can, but <laughs> things are uh, things are interesting with my immune system. I have an, that's how I say it. I don't. I think words have a lot of power, and diagnoses have a lot of power. So, yeah, I've been mold sick severely. I lived in some very moldy places here in Oregon and have been made very ill. I have had. I have been bit by a tick and potentially have Lyme disease. I have all these things that people like to use as diagnosis. And I don't ever mm -hmm. say I have those things because I don't. I'm just Tina Moore, who's dealt with some shit. And I have a weird immune system that it kind of hyper reacts. It's or under react. It's weird. It's autoimmune. It's a funny immune system. But I can keep it. I can navigate it as best I can and have as much faith in it as possible because I put in the work every day to be harder to kill. So yeah. you you just nailed it. We can't avoid these things. And avoidance behavior gets nobody anywhere. We can't hide from COVID. We can't hide from mold. We can't hide from parasites. Um, if you want to live in a, I mean, if people want to like buy a bubble and live in a mm -hmm. bubble, then I have a vision of, you know, those bumper bubbles where people go out in the fields and like ram yep. into each other at mm -hmm. a big party. <laughs> We're all going to be in those. I mean, that's where people are. Humans are so weird. I'm like, just go out and experience life and put in the work daily to, and I think the root of this comes down to what we keep talking about, which is metabolic health. Mm -hmm. This is why I do the work I do. And it's why the work you do the work you do. We're just coming at it from a different uh, niche, if you will, you know, yeah. different angle. But at the end of the day, it's, we're, we're speaking the same language. So Talk about how you mentioned heart attacks can happen without a blockage or like in a classical heart attack sense. Talk more about that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, the, the, I guess the traditional way that people think of a, a heart attack happens is that 
um, you know, we get this atherosclerotic buildup of a coronary artery. So where it's slowly narrowing over time, it's getting stenotic. Okay. And so, and eventually, you know, people will tell you that it gets so narrow that it completely blocks um, the, um, uh, the, the flow of blood and we get damage to tissue downstream from that artery. Um, however, that doesn't quite make sense to me because, you know, there, there, there are cases where, you know, someone has like a 90% stenosis in an artery and they go run a marathon and they're just fine. You can't, there's no way that person ran a marathon with 10% of the blood that they should have to a, a region of their heart. There's just no way. Um, and so there's this really interesting, um, now, now to be fair, if stenosis is happening and part of that stenosis breaks off um, because of stress or because it's just unstable, like these unstable plaques they talk about, part of it breaks off and a clot forms and clogs the artery instantly. Yes, that totally does happen. That causes heart attacks. Um, uh, and But there are a lot of cases where people get tissue damage in, in an area of the heart um, and there's no stenosis whatsoever. There's no blockage, no clot whatsoever. When they go in and, and they either do autopsy or they go into the angio, um, they don't find any sort of thing like that. Yet there's tissue death. Um, and it happens a lot more than we think, because since I started talking about it, tons of people reached out to me and said, Hey, that happened to me. That happened to me, you know? Um, and so there's this, there's a researcher. There was a researcher named Giorgio Baraldi, um, an Italian guy. And he, um, he really looked into this and what he did, he developed this system called the plastic cast studies. You ever been to like the body world exhibits where they have like these perfect casts of like the arterial system of fish or something like that, um, or an organ in the body. Um, and he developed that, that technique where he filled the arteries with on autopsy, you know, he filled the arteries with some neoprene or, or latex solution. And then he dissolved away the tissue and he had this perfect cast of the arterial system. And what he found in, in you know, the thousands of autopsy hearts that he, that he did throughout his career was that anywhere that there was a 70% or more stenosis, the body had built a vast network of collateral arteries, arteries that go around that stenosis and fully compensated the heart, um, the tissue. Okay. So, um, and this was everywhere, hundred percent of the time where there was more than 70% stenosis, the body responded and, and, you know, cardiologists, I've heard from cardiologists. Yeah, we know about collaterals. They definitely happen, but they can't form fast enough. And I found two studies that show that they form, um, they can form within four days. Um, so they gradually produce a stenosis in these rats uh, and then in dogs, I think too, um, in an artery and the, and, the, and the collaterals formed within four days and totally compensated the area. So this to me explains why when you look at the research on elective stents, so not stents that are placed during a heart attack, those are life-saving. Um, but stents that are placed electively because there happened to be stenosis they found and they want to place one anyways, or bypass surgeries. When you look at the research on those and how effective they are at saving lives um, or preventing heart attacks in the future, they're abysmal. They're just not very good. It's because the body has already created bypasses. So putting a stent in there or putting another bypass in there is not really going to help the situation because the real issue is the metabolic health and the things we've been talking about. Um, so anyways, so what does cause those heart attacks then um, where there's no blockage whatsoever? And so I've deemed these metabolic heart attacks um, because what happens is we get this forced shift in metabolism in the heart because the heart prefers fatty acids and ketones for fuel. And research shows that over and over again. The only time a heart tissue prefers glucose for fuel is when it's actually um, doing reperfusion. So when there has been damage to the heart, when blood comes back into that area, that's, that seems to be when it prefers glucose every other time it prefers fatty acids and ketones. And I think there are reasons for that, but there is a situation that can happen where the heart tissue or an area of the heart tissue is forced to burn more glucose than it would like to. And it's the same type of situation that happens, um, sort of in like your muscles, your skeletal muscles. Like when you go for a run, um, you start to burn more glycogen, those glycogen stores in the muscles and you get some lactic acid buildup, some hydrogen ion buildup, and you start to feel burn, a muscle burn, right? Um, and so luckily for those muscles, if it gets too bad, you can just stop running and that gets pumped out within the hour or so. Um, however, if that happens in the heart tissue, that can't happen. The heart has to keep contracting. Um, and so there's a situation where we can get poor metabolic health, where we're already um, not used to burning fatty acids and ketones, um, and high oxidative stress that depletes nitric oxide and an imbalance in our autonomic nervous system, because the stress signal to our heart is supposed to be even. Like if we get a stress signal, there's always supposed to be a lesser non-stress signal, parasympathetic signal mm -hmm. that balances it out. 
right? Um, however, there's situations like if we get, you know, um, imbalance in our stress response and decreased vagal tone, um, then if we get a surge in stressful activity or a, a big stressful event and a surge in stress response to the heart tissue without that, that uh, balancing out of the non-stress response, then the, the, the surge creates this, all of a sudden, this, um, this kind of um, chaotic state where the heart starts to burn more glucose than it wants to. Um, and if we're oh. metabolically, if we're metabolically inflexible, then that just happens more readily. Right. Um, and the key is, is, is the oxidative stress. If we're, if we're in high oxidative stress, high toxin exposure, that parasympathetic signal can't get to the heart without nitric oxide. Um, and so nitric oxide is depleted in oxidative stress and it's depleted when we have damage to lining of the arteries, because that's where nitric oxide is produced. Right. And so if we get this, these three imbalances happen and the stars kind of align, then, then we get that, that, um, surge in, um, glucose utilization by the heart, which creates lactic acid, which is angina. If we're thinking about it. Right. Um, and then if that happens too much, it actually creates this swelling in the heart tissue. And so that swelling, like usually the pressure is higher coming from the arteries to the heart tissue, but if the swelling happens in the heart tissue, now the pressure is higher going the opposite way. And that tissue is deprived of oxygen. We get this hypoxic, toxic blood um, system. We get, we get tissue death. Um, and I, you know, I, I talk about this whole process in my book with all the research and literature that supports it. Um, but it, it is a, it's, it's a result of these three imbalances, poor metabolic health, high oxidative stress and inflammation and imbalance in the autonomic nervous system. Those are the drivers of heart disease, but especially these metabolic heart attacks where there's where a heart attack is caused by a shift in metabolism. This makes so much sense. And I have like put pieces of that together, but not like that, you know, not, not, not quite like that. That makes so much, I'm, my mind is blowing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you think about these things, like, cause I'm sure, I'm sure as a practitioner, you understood those imbalances. Yes. But when you put them together yes, and you see this, this observe this thing that happens, this is, and to me, this is why heart attacks are more um, common in winter because heart rate variability also goes down in winter, which is the measure of our stress response. It's why heart attacks are more common on Mondays or stressful days of the year. And the yep. research supports this, you know, um, it's why um, it's why heart attacks are more common as we age because um, we're less, um, we're less likely to have metabolic health as we age. We have to work harder at it. You know, um, we're also, we have more toxin exposure, um, and, uh, and heart rate variability goes down as we age, you know, just, just kind of a natural part of aging, you know, how much it goes down is up to the person because you can always do things, uh, that prevent it from going down more. Um, but that just seems to be what we observe as we age, which is why these things happen more as we age. Uh, yeah, now it makes so much sense. I actually struggle with this a little bit personally. Like I get a little bit of angina when my mm. anger goes off or not, you know, metabolically, I'm beautiful. My labs look great. Right. And I've always wondered, what is this? Like, what is, and, and this makes exceptional sense. We don't have much time. Cause I know that you have to go soon for another interview. Um, can we talk about heart rate variability a little bit Definitely. before you go? Because I'll be totally honest here. I wear the stupid aura ring for that reason alone. Mm-hmm. And I use the whoop watch. I was using the whoop band and the aura ring uh, together to see which was more accurate. And they were pretty much telling me the same thing. So I realized, okay, like I was looking for accuracy as one of these not accurate. And they both were telling me the same thing on the same days. Yeah. My heart rate variability is in the 20s and right. I cannot get it up. And sometimes it'll go up into the 40s. Maybe in the 50s, it's random when it does, but I will say it's higher when I am living my life, like uh, when I teach classes to a group of people mm. or I'm doing something I really love. And it also goes up definitely the more steps I get in. The more mm. I go out for walks in that field every day or the more I get on a – I love climbing hills and stairs. So anytime right. I can k- climb a hill or a stair, heart rate variability – Awesome. Even if I'm doing stuff that I shouldn't be like staying up too late, or um, even in the past when I would, I don't drink anymore, but if I'd have some alcohol, that definitely kills my heart rate variability. But even if I was doing things I shouldn't be doing, if I was living in my happy place and I was staying active, not, but it goes down if I do too heavy of a metabolic workout. I don't have a, a great adrenal system. So I did a pretty hefty kettlebell workout on Tuesday with my coach, and mine's been in the toilet, low 20 cents. So help me make some sense of that. And so the audience yeah. can learn. Well, so heart rate variability, people hear heart rate and they go, oh, it's your heart rate. 
like, no, it's heart rate variability. It's the, it's the, literally the, um, the difference between intervals of heartbeats, right? You know, how, how much uh, time is there between heartbeats? I like to explain it in a different way in something called respiratory sinus arrhythmia, which measures the same thing. But basically if I was to take my pulse um, on my wrist right now, and I take a slow, deep breath in, I would feel my pulse quicken a little bit. And, and if I take a slow breath out, I would feel the pulse um, go slower, right? And the difference between the fastest it gets when I take um, a breath in and the slowest it gets um, when I take a breath out is your respiratory sinus arrhythmia, which is a measure of balance in the autonomic nervous system, your stress response, the same as heart rate variability. Um, and, and that measures your ability to adapt to stress. How, how able are you to encounter a stress and recover from it? Right. Um, and so we want a, a, a higher heart rate variability. We want more variability because that means we can go back and forth between two extreme states, right? We can, we can adapt to things. And I, I kind of define health as the ability to adapt to certain situations. Um, but, um, but yeah, that's, that's heart rate variability. And so it's the best measure of balance in our stress response that we know of. And so to me, there's no mistake that it's measured through the heart. Um, because the heart is this organ that we attribute or that we, um, we associate with our emotional state. That's why we say, I love you with all my heart, or we gave it all our heart or something like that. There's no mistake that this organ is like, I feel like it's like our sixth sense. It's, it's our, it's our emotional sense. Right. And it's actually communicating how we feel emotionally to our brain. Um, because the, there's, there's more signals being sent from the heart to the brain than brain to the heart. We're finding that with most organs, I think. Um, but, um, but yeah, so their emotional state is heavily connected to the health of our heart um, because then based on how our heart is feeling, um, our brain sends signals back down to it. How, how stressed, how fast do we beat? How, how do we regulate these things? You know, these autonomic type things that uh, like the heartbeat and stuff like that. Um, so when I talked about like those metabolic heart attacks, the final piece of it was that surge in adrenaline, that surge in stress response. And that can happen improperly um, with, an imbalance in our autonomic nervous system with a low heart rate variability. Right. And so there's actually studies that show in, in lots of heart attacks that the heart rate variability is, is dropping significantly the hour before the heart attack happens, like on people where they're already monitoring them in the hospital. Um, and so, which is, which is pretty fascinating. Um, but when we look at heart rate variability, you know, they say, they say it should be anywhere from 20 to hundred is normal, which is a very wide range. And so lots of times, um, just like with any kind of number, people want to say, well, mine's higher than yours, ha ha ha, whatever, you know, but it's really, you want to get your baseline, you know, so you want to, so like you get your heart rate variability, you can't just really get like one reading. You want to measure it for two, three weeks and see what your baseline is and then work to improve it for there. Because if you don't have a baseline, you don't know, um, based on what's going on in your life, what's where your heart rate variability is, you know, like you don't, you don't know how to gauge it to anything or compare it to anything if you don't have your baseline. And so mine's fairly low too. Mine hangs out like in the thirties. Um, and I feel uh, better then. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, it, and, but I know people that hangs out in the eighties, you know, yeah, like, me that's, too. That's, that's like their, the hundred, I know people in the hundreds yeah. who are like so stressed out and they eat like shit. And I'm like, how are is yours in the hundreds? That's yeah. And so like when I, you know, when I have like a client or somebody like you, like they takes care of themselves. It's really passionate about health and they have this low heart rate variability. Um, I always tell them two things. One, uh, and I tell myself this too, because mine kind of floats down the low end too. Like um, one is the type of stress really matters because we could say, Oh, I'm really stressed, really busy, but they did this study looking at health outcomes and heart rate variability. And, and they studied all these people in the, within this company, this big company, there's lots of employees and the people who, were kind of, you know, lower on the totem pole um, and didn't have job security, didn't have secure wages, didn't control their, um, their work schedule, those types of things. The stresses that made them feel either in unpredictable situations or out of control had a much bigger impact and, and detrimental effect on health than the people who also reported really high stress, but were higher in the company and had more control. You know, it's all about control, which so you can imagine what the past, you know, COVID years did to people when they, all these things just made us feel out of control. Um, it, it was insane. Um, but, you know, so those types of, those are the type of stresses you want to look for. It's like, not just, it's not just adding in, like, cause you know, you can add in meditation, you can add in nature exposure and all these things that have been shown to balance the autonomic nervous system, but we really want to eliminate the things 
that um, that are creating it. And so when we when we think about what things can we eliminate, it's those stresses that make you feel like you're in unpredictable situations or out of control. Um, those are the most important ones to to see if you can mitigate in some way. Um, and then also add in those things that um, you know that help balance the autonomic nervous system and create this. Um, because like you know, I say adding meditation and nature exposure and you know cold baths and all these different things is great. But if you're not addressing that that um, um, uh, that uh, that cause, then you're just you know putting out fires without trying to catch the arsonist. You know? <laughs> yeah. Right. And so so that's important. The other thing is, and this is something I've recently come. Um, uh, come to realize, and I wrote about it in my book, but I don't think I quite realized how important it was, was, was unresolved trauma. Yeah. Um, and, and I've, I've read, I'm reading this fast. I, I don't know if you're familiar with Peter Levine, but like mm-hmm. his, his work is just blowing my mind. Cause I, I wrote about it a little in my book, as far as the evolved mechanism of stress between reptiles and mammals. But it seems that our body is where trauma is stored. And we're mm-hmm. so focused on the mind as far as our treatment. It's another way that Western medicine just gotten it completely wrong. And so his, his technique is just, um, I think a huge breakthrough. And, um, and so if people should explore that too, um, because they could be doing everything right, but if there's just unresolved past trauma, that's literally changing their body's physiology. Um, and there's nothing their mind can do about it. Then, then they're again, trying to, you know, put out the fires without catching the arsonist. No, I, yeah, I completely agree. It's funny. I, I've had this long, long, long standing, uh, back pain and I, I got to a point last year where I had tried everything I know. And I know I have access to a lot of cool stuff, you know, and I was doing everything and I just felt like it was off. And then I realized I, all the old past traumas I had compartmentalized as I built my career, you know, I just shove them in a box, like a theoretical box. Sometimes it's like, it's like those Ikea bookcases that you can put records in that are those squares, you know, and you can, you can buy the ones that are longer or taller and you can turn them sideways and you can just add more. (laughs) That was my trauma response. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Those Ikea bookcases. And you know, they have the glass doors for them and the solid doors. So sometimes they'd be behind a door, they'd be locked. Sometimes they'd be behind a glass door. And I finally realized in this last year, I'm like, I have to deal with all the shit. This mm-hmm. is, and since I have been, uh, my back has been feeling so much better and for lots of reasons, but that it, it yeah. really was profound and actually working with, you know, on that energetic kind of, um, I mean, I, I don't know what else to call her. She's kind of a shaman psychic, this woman I work mm-hmm. with. And just working on that realm has been so tremendously helpful. And it's funny because what she keeps coming back and telling me that my higher self is saying is to stop worrying about control. I don't have mm-hmm. control. Everything is in perfect order. Mm-hmm. Everything is as it should be. Every role everyone's playing is the role they're supposed to be playing and everything is in divine order and you can't control it. And so I'm learning to not have control. And it's a big step for me, but man, is it liberating when something, something just came up with my daughter recently and, you know, my husband was freaking out about it. And I was like, we have no control over this. Mm-hmm. We, we have no control over this matter. So we can yeah. flow with it and do, make the best out of it as we can or we can sit here and, and gripe about it, you know? And so yeah. these are, these are lessons we learn. I think as we age, unfortunately, I think by the time we figure this out is when we're old enough to have a heart attack. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, it's a really, really important point you just made, because I talked about how, like, when you look into your life and what stresses are stressing you out, those ones that make you feel like you're out of control in unpredictable yeah. situations, those are the ones you want to get rid of. But if you can't get rid of those, what's really important is maybe changing your perspective of those stresses, you know? Because we tend to, I mean, we're the only species on the planet that thinks our way into stress responses. You know, even if nothing stressful is actually happening to us, we can think our way into that stress response. So it's an important point that you bring up. Sometimes you have to change your perspective of a stress um, to totally conquer it. Yeah, that's been a huge shift for me as I age. I wish I'd learned all these things in my 20s and 30s. And I'm so impressed by people. I know you're younger than me. I won't ask how old you are, but I <laughs> I meet people who are, I, I refer to them now as young people because I'm that old. And I, I'm so impressed with the insight that you all have. And even my daughter at 22, just some of the profound things that come out of her young mm. mouth is, I'm so impressed that people are making these things a priority in their younger years versus me. You know, I was part of that generation of like, don't you don't need any sleep, work hard, tackle it all and, you know, push on. And mm-hmm. that's just not the, that's, no. we need some grit and resilience for sure, but we need to learn to, basically, I think what you're saying at the end of this is we should all be meditating more in our saunas. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. That would be, that'd be a start. Yeah. 
Oh my gosh. Well, this has been so much fun and truly, truly mind-blowing. Thank you for your insight and what you've just taught me because I normally come on and I, I love my podcast because it gives me a chance to learn, but this one's really been like, you just helped me sort out a lot of a piece, puzzle pieces. You're good. Where can the audience find you and your book and all of your wonderful resources? Yeah. My website is resourceyourhealth.com. Um, people can find like my blog and my um, health coaching is on there. My books are on there as well. My books are also on Amazon and, and through the publisher. And if you don't want to go to Amazon, there's other places you can get it too. Um, and then I am on social media um, a little bit reluctantly, but I'm on social media, um, Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, just uh, Dr. Stephen Hussey, Dr. Stephen Hussey. People can find me and contact me there. Okay, cool. We'll put all the links in the show notes and we'll get everybody and we'll put that book you mentioned in by Pollock in mm. there. What is that sells gels and the engines of life. That sounds amazing. Can I ask you one question before we leave? Have you seen Donnie Darko? I have. It's been a long time though. Go watch it after what okay. you just told me. That's all okay. I was thinking about. Everybody listening, go watch Donnie Darko. I, I'm not going to give it away, but yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely was, I saw it before I knew all these things I've been talking about. So yeah. And if you can't put it together, send me a message and I'll explain okay. why I think <laughs> yeah. this. But the that fourth phase water thing, I okay, I don't know. It like made me it made my little tingly brain go off. So, oh, such a pleasure to have you on. I'm so glad to finally connect. I hope we, you'll come back and give us some more insight in the near future. And thanks for being on the Dr. Tina Show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Dr. Tina Show. Please be sure to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Tina, that's D-R-T-Y-N-A, and Dr. Tina 2.0, as well as visit my website at drtina.com. This is a Resonant Media production produced by Drake Peterson and mixed by Chris McCone. The theme song is by John the Gilt. As always, you can email the show at podcast at drtina.com. And if you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. See you next week. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practices of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is intended not to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.